This episode is sponsored by Monograph and ArcIT. You'll hear more about them later on in the episode. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. Today's guest is helping architects strengthen their technical capabilities and offering something that both Janine and I wish we had when we started out in architecture. That's right. Christine, also known as Christy, has a growing following on social media, and she's really well known for being the go-to person when it comes to detailing and making your building envelope not leak. Christine, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself and a little bit about Building Science Club. Okay. Well, um, my background is in architecture. I have a master's in architecture. And pretty early on in my career, actually while I was still in school, I started working for a, um, a firm that was really interested in extremely energy efficient buildings, typically residential, multifamily, and the practice was in New York City. It was Chris Benedict, um, fantastic firm, small firm, kind of scrappy firm at the time, probably a little bit still now too, though I haven't checked in uh, super recently. And what I mean by that is uh, scrappy in the in the sort of jack of all trades mentality in the firm itself, right? So um, everybody does a little bit of everything. Nobody is too good for, or, or, you know, no task is too unimportant. Nobody's too good for anything. And it was a great environment for me as a as a student. And in any case, if you if you care about or if you're attempting to do anything bold with respect to energy efficient design, which certainly this firm was, certainly Chris Benedict was at the time. I mean, her buildings and still is, but the buildings at the time were using 80% less energy for heat and hot water than a typical uh, New York building. And she was doing it for no extra upfront construction costs, which was absolutely extraordinary. And if you're gonna do that, you have to know a lot about building science and you have to know a lot about construction. And um, she, uh, Chris, really felt strongly about teaching um, the, the apprenticeship model of architecture and, and um, making sure that practitioners were gaining experience or young people were gaining experience in all areas. And so she put me in the field a ton and, um, and I just loved it. I thought it was absolutely magic. It's where the, the real magic happened was um, how what we were doing in the office actually got built. And I guess it's just starting there. I really took to the uh, enclosure details, water management details, that kind of stuff. It, it matters more when you're trying to make things more energy efficient because previously we've been or we've been able to rely on energy and energy inefficiency specifically to dry our buildings out, right? Poorly insulated buildings and leaky buildings have a lot of energy that goes across them, and we use that or that energy would could be used for drying. So stuff would get wet, and it wouldn't really matter because it would dry out pretty quickly. And when we start to uh, pay more attention to energy efficiency and also other things, it's not the only thing, but interior comfort and oh, there's a lot of other stuff there. But just focusing in on the energy for a moment, if you um, if you start paying attention to energy and reduce energy flow across our enclosures 
then there's less energy available for drawing. So we need to get better at our, our detailing and controlling water in the first place. And a bunch of other stuff has to, has to change as a result. And I find those trade-offs and that dynamic really fascinating. And um, I've, I've made a career out of it. So, so there you go. There's a few reasons that we invited you on the show today. You are very entrepreneurial. You have done some really incredible stuff to help bring the level of education up on these topics. Obviously, you care a lot about climate and and having real solutions that are going to make a difference in buildings and construction. But I I guess I want to just make sure that our audience really understands this term of building scientists, because I think that not everyone really knows what that is. Can you tell us what it is? It's very applied physics. And it's applying physics to our to the building enclosure, which are, which are basically the the building enclosure is essentially the term we use for the layers that separate the inside from the outside, and so I specialize in those layers. I use the term building scientist because some people are familiar with it and it means something to them, but really it's a I consider my own work personally as a subset of architecture. I don't view it as separate. I don't view, although a lot of people do approach building science from an engineering angle or even from a scientific angle. I think it is a, it's a, it's a form of applied, even applied architecture, applied physics or physics as applied to, to architecture, particularly in the area of energy and water, water management. Um, But it's not a whole lot different than like architects have been doing this anyway. It's, just giving architects, I guess, an understanding or a framework for understanding stuff that they've already been doing anyway. And the better a framework you have for the physics, it lets you, gives you more creative freedom in making changes to standard practices in response to a change in climate, um, changing demands, changing program, changing expectations from our, from our clients, that kind of stuff. So it's the, it's the physics, the background in physics to help us understand stuff that, architects already do to create comfortable interior environments. Your enthusiasm is really refreshing in this space because if I were in your shoes and got thrown into the field, I definitely would not have reacted the same way you did. So is there anything in your background that either piqued your interest or maybe made you interested in architecture in the first place that really drew you to this aspect of building and design and construction? Janine and I always talk about being big dorks from an operational perspective, and a lot of people could probably care less about operations. So I'm just overwhelmed by your enthusiasm for an area that I really always struggled appreciating. But given the way you present it, and not just because it's pink and pretty and on Instagram, it really makes it educational and interesting. So what inherently drew you to like this particular aspect? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think it's probably a mix of a lot of things. I do think that people's backgrounds, especially their early background really ends up affecting what they kind of take to or what path they take. I mean, I think that's probably true in a lot of professions. I was introduced to field work and to this kind of stuff, A, by someone else who was really passionate about it. So that's normal, right? I mean, even in elementary school, when you have a good teacher who really loves whatever they're teaching, the, the students start liking it too, or they tend to like it too. So part of it was just that. I had a teacher who early in my career, like right at the right time, who was really passionate about this kind of stuff too. So it was easy to 
to recognize through her, hey, there's something interesting here. I wonder if it interests me too. And then the second part was that two, well, two things. One, I had done something first. My undergraduate degree was not in architecture. I was working in marketing for a couple of years before deciding to go to architecture school and I hated it. I was just really bad at it. I didn't like business at all. It was really difficult actually in that for the first time ever, I was, I was really bad at something. And I, I didn't like it. I didn't like being bad at something. And I think maybe having, approaching architecture, I, I, I got to be a student again. So I was, I was a student when I, when I was having these early experiences in the field, I was a student and I'd also experienced like personal and professional failure. And I think two of the, the like both of those things together can make a person uh, open-minded uh, in maybe ways that when you're an adult and you're being confronted with something, you're a little bit, a little bit more, um, I don't know, uh, there's, there's a higher expectation that you enter something with more competence. And I think that's a big, a big challenge with practicing professionals, architects and architects in training who have a great deal of experience in the profession, but not a whole lot of experience in this one area. And of course it's annoying or intimidating or uh, particularly for people who I think often define themselves as, as more creative and less technical. This can seem overwhelming and, um, and just not that, not that interesting. And then I think our profession actually is organized in some ways that make it even harder to really get at the, the stuff that I think is kind of fun. And that is that we just don't spend a lot of time in the field. Our profession is increasingly specialized. So acquiring the skill, the skill set in the first place is difficult. And I think there's also maybe unintentionally some incentives, some market incentives to make this stuff seem harder than it is. And that's not to minimize like building science. Uh, th there is, <laughs> there is physics in it. There's science in the name. So, and there are people who spend their entire lives studying this and dealing with only this. And they're very, very smart and they're practicing at a very high level. And I don't want to diminish that work, but at the level that most architects need for daily professional practice, it's not that crazy. And really, and I think that's what I've sort of tapped into is if I can provide a framework or some clarity to a topic that's otherwise complicated, it, um, it makes something access that seems complicated accessible. Um, it really is not as hard. Like architects, I think, get really intimidated by, or they can, not, not all of them, but um, field work can be intimidating and, and some of the, some of the science behind particularly water management and energy can be really intimidating. And yes, there's a real richness. If you start to do that, you could dedicate your whole career to it, but there's also some generally applicable rules of thumb and frameworks that architects can incorporate into their daily practice so that they can basically solve like 95% of what comes their way themselves. And then for the 5% of cases where they really need a specialist, well, then they know that they can go deal with a specialist. And then even better, they're equipped to actually work with that specialist better because they have this framework to begin with. Um, and I think sometimes consultants make this seem harder because when, when we get our professional education either through manufacturers or from consultants who are getting, just not to knock consultants, I am one, um, but who are getting, you know, they're doing it for free to basically get business for their consulting practice. 
And the sort of message is, well, this stuff is really hard and therefore you should hire me. Or this stuff is really complicated and therefore you should buy our product. Um, because then you like the solution is our product or the solution is my consulting services as opposed to, okay, no, can, this problem is not as complicated as you thought it was. Here's what you need to do or here's what you need to know to solve the problem yourself. And oh, by the way, you can apply that to, you know, the dozens of versions of the same problem you come across in your in your practice. You know, I've been talking to a few people about BIM and efficiencies and how architects don't necessarily use BIM to its full extent. But one interesting comment that came up in the conversation, and to be fair, I love the profession before really diving deep into BIM myself, was that there's a greater separation in using this technology from understanding building sciences or how buildings go together in construction. This is because before we hand drew, or at least I catted out details, and I actually had to draw in the various different connections, label them properly. And now we have these three-dimensional blocks that we just drop onto the page. You know, let's use that same connection that we used in that last building. And I think it just makes it harder for people to understand how things come together, which is why what you are doing is that much more critical for today's architectural practice. But I guess I am wondering, what is your response to that? Have you seen a greater emergence in the need for what you're doing? Yeah, it's it's hard to make connections sometimes between, not sometimes, a lot of times, between the lines on a drawing and what those lines actually represent in real life. And, and that's, I think, a natural function of the tools that we use to produce our drawings. And I think an important distinction or a helpful distinction is that for builders or for contractors, the deliverable is the building. And for architects, the deliverable is the drawing. Now that's not entirely a fair characterization because obviously we're not being hired. They're not framing these drawings and putting them on the wall. Um, the, our, our clients want to produce a building in the end, but in terms of how our how our businesses are organized, we produce drawings. That's our job. And it's stuff that we use to facilitate drawing production isn't always aligned with encouraging and understanding on our part, on the design side, with, um, with, what, with what the elements of those, those drawings actually mean in, in real life. And I mean, you know, I, I don't, I have mixed feelings about it, obviously, as, as do I think probably everybody. It's a tool that makes some things easier, but make other things, other things more difficult. So, um, I mean, I guess like everything else, it's trade-off. I want to come back to this idea about training and, you know, you kind of mentioned this division that's created around the technical knowledge set. I mean, there are people who pursue becoming a technical architect and they spend their whole careers working towards that. And, you know, in some firms, they they divide out people who are technically competent and split them away from people who are design focused or have other skills that are, you know, generally pushed in other directions. But I guess I w- there's a lot of things, I think, around the training component of how we orient people to this knowledge that feels like a massive barrier, especially for people who are very early in their careers. And I guess the, the conversation that I hope we can go into today is just about 
confidence and how do we overcome these barriers to get people you know more comfortable and trained on this stuff earlier in their careers rather than making it inaccessible so i was curious a lot to unpack in that and maybe we can take it piece by piece <laughs> yeah it's i have mixed feelings about it too as i think probably everybody practicing does there's a huge disconnect between our formal academic preparation for this profession and the actual daily practice of it. And, and I don't know what the, what the ideal, you know, combination is with this stuff. I think, I think also it's so easy to compare in our world right now with particularly with social media. So when we compare how our profession is compared to other, other professions and our level of competence, uh, upon graduation versus the, the level of competence of, of other technical professions at, at their uh, graduation and entry into the professional paid world. I don't know. It's tough. It's, it's, uh, it's hard to come up with, um, with, a, with sort of an ideal model for this kind of stuff. Um, I do think it's okay that we encourage people to pursue specialties within architecture. So in general, it doesn't I don't see a, a huge problem of principle with more technical oriented people pursuing pursuing that and starting to pursue it early and more design oriented people pursuing that and being encouraged in that. But I do think that one of the things we obviously have to be really careful of, which is I think what's what's happened in a lot of places is that um, we make these decisions early on and end up not benefiting from at least a basic understanding of what else is going on in our profession. We are generalists in our profession and, and it's okay to be generalists, but um, it's difficult sometimes to maintain that because there's just so many subspecialties, right? It's hard, right? We have, there's, it's not, and it's not just the part that I do, like what's an art, what, what is a typical residential architect to do with understanding so the building science stuff, water management, energy efficiency, and um, acoustics and indoor air quality. And there's all kinds of specialties that we ought to know something about, but it's really hard to acquire that skill set. And it's, and it's hard to do that. Even if we had programs in schools that did this a little bit better, which I think we should, I think we should always be improving this kind of stuff. But I think when I was a student, I wasn't, even if someone taught me this really well, I, I didn't have the context to apply it. It wouldn't mean anything to me. I wouldn't understand what I was really learning. So you kind of have to learn this as you're practicing, but that's very frustrating because, you know, you learn through doing, and it's extremely uncomfortable when you are on a job site and you're supposed to be in charge of some stuff and you're represent, you know, you're representing your firm. And now you're supposed to kind of learn something in front of your contractor and sometimes even your clients. And that's a, that's a really difficult position to, to be in. So I don't know. I just try to help people make that process less uncomfortable for them. But I think it, I, I think to a, in a certain sense, it's going to be, it's uncomfortable and we're all adults doing this. It's that that's hard. It's hard to say, I don't know this, especially when it feels like something that you should know. And when you're on a job site in a hard hat, and let's say you've been up until then pretty focused on design, it can feel humiliating. We're sort of presuming that everybody, that we are always partnering with people who are good-natured and, and pretty decent. But 
I think a lot of times we can really be in our profession taken advantage of and railroaded by contractors and subcontractors who want to undermine our position in front of our clients and position themselves as being the the ones who really understand how this is working and your architect is just getting in the way. And now this is, I work with great contractors. That's not been typical for me in my profession, but it's also not been uncommon. And architects, I think get pushed around a ton on technical stuff. And yeah, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like seeing that. I like, I like being able to equip architects with more technical competence so that they can be open-minded and not pushed around both of those things. When you have a lot of confidence in your, your technical abilities, you can listen to a contractor's suggestion or substitution request or whatever with an open mind. You don't have to say, you can say yes more often. Um, and, and, and you're also less likely to get pushed around. So I guess in the ideal setting, it's to make you more open-minded in the, in the sort of difficult setting, it's to avoid getting uh, taken advantage of which happens a lot, particularly younger in your, in your career, which I, I just ah, I don't like seeing that at all. It makes me so mad. So I used to work on, I used to work in public projects in California. And as you know, it's always lowest bid. Yeah. So there was a saying that the contractor was trying to change order their way to a profit. So we definitely felt that every time we were on the job site, they were just looking for mistakes in our drawings or places to call us out. Yeah. And unethical contractors, sometimes like they, I worked for one once that, oh gosh, I just, I just hated working for them. They do this sort of weird right pocket, left pocket accounting. So it was a developer that also the same company owned a contracting company. So they were a developer and builder, but in the company, they were compensated differently. So what they would do is they would, um, they would like deliberately get subs to underbid jobs. They would obscure uh, the clarity of the bids on purpose to try to get subs to underbid the jobs. And then they'd get rewarded for coming in under budget, I presume, for their for their project. And then like, because the change order stuff came out of someone else's budget. So in the end, it was like, it was a dumb way to build and it wasn't overall good for their company, but because of their company culture and the way that they had their reward structure, organized, it was um, individuals could benefit from this sort of lack of transparency and obscuring bids and trying to take advantage of subcontractors. And I, I thought it was just a really annoying and disheartening way to, to do business, but that, that happens a lot in construction. I wish I understood the business side of things a little bit more to, to kind of understand how I mean, maybe I'm the fool. These guys all seem to be doing pretty well financially, but um, but it was a pretty miserable way to operate. Um, like, why wouldn't you want your your bid documents and your drawings to be as clear as possible? Why wouldn't you want your contractors to know exactly your subs to know exactly what is required of them, rather than being like, "Gotcha, you agreed to this, but didn't realize you agreed to it," and you know. Now I'm, now I'm winning. I, 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 this is also, I mentioned before that I was in business before, as you can see, I don't like some people thrive on that type of negotiation and kind of feel like someone has to be losing for them to win. And, um, and I, maybe that's what makes me such a bad business person. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're hitting on a really important idea around ethical business relationships. And to me, it just, it challenges a question of ethics and, I think 
we all can work to make money, but you have to be you have to be grounded in how you're making money so you can sleep at night about like just because you can make more money and take some shortcuts to get there faster. I don't know. At the end of my life, I want to be proud of how I made my money. I don't want to have, you know, a shadow of doubt on the way I went about it. That's something I love about architecture and our profession in general is that there's actually so many small business owners in it. And I think that so you, you have a lot of people who are just deciding, okay, what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of business do I want to run? And I think that's nice. I like, I like that. There's a freedom and a flexibility with that sort of model that I think is admirable. I, I like that about the profession. Not everybody's in that position, but, um, uh, and it comes at a cost, right? Actually, I, I, when I was working, I mentioned my early experience with Chris Benedict. There were a lot of decisions that I, I saw her make that were, financially not good for her, but she made them out of principle because she decided this is what kind of business I want to run. And I aspire to that, especially when it hurts, right? Like when you're making, when you're passing on a job or not working with a particular collaborator or something, cause you don't think it'll be a good fit. It's tough sometimes to make those decisions, but I see people in our profession specifically making them a lot in ways that I, I really respect. Let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode, Monograph. We're proud to partner with Monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture, one design studio at a time. Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio. Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. Our friends at ArcIT are helping architecture firms with their technology solutions, including fighting back against ransomware and cybersecurity attacks. They recently told us about one San Francisco-based design firm they help who had three ransomware attacks in a span of six months. Their latest hit took their generic IT provider over seven days to recover the data. Yikes. Imagine not having access to your project data for over seven days. For a mid-sized firm of 40 people, that's a lot of people not having the ability to do work on their projects. Cyber attacks are a growing challenge in the hybrid world, and they are costly. The firm leadership estimated that the pure financial cost of the business was just over 100K, not accounting for the tremendous mental pressure the team experienced during the attack and subsequent recovery. However, it's important to mention that proactive architecture firms can get ahead of these type of technology threats. As you consider your technology infrastructure needs for your business, be sure to check out ArcIT. They're a trusted IT provider who is in the business of helping architecture firms, and they offer tailored solutions for design studios, small, midsize, and large. ArcIT is offering a free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment to help you determine how secure your business is. During the assessment, ArcIT will help you identify your top three highest risk areas in your business. 
Speaking of risks, ArcIT is also sharing some helpful tips with practice disrupted listeners that you can implement tomorrow to ensure your business is secure from cybersecurity threats. Their latest tip is to use different passwords for every service and use a password manager such as LastPass to keep track of them. Tune in next week to hear the next tip from ArcIT. To take your security solutions further, contact ArcIT at www.getarcit.com pd to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or speak to them about custom solutions for your design firm. I want to come back to the training and I, I just want to push a little further on this because I think that the... I think, I guess I see this climb towards technical competency is pretty steep for people. I mean, I've seen people, just just last week, I was in one of the Women in Architecture Facebook groups, and there was this young person who was saying she just started a new job at a firm where the first month she was onboarding and she was training and it was going well, but as soon as she kind of got out of her comfort zone you know, all this self-doubt came up. And, I, and I've certainly experienced this in my own career when I was practicing and I was really on the course for becoming a licensed architect, trying to climb that ladder of technical competency, understanding what the lines in your model and your drawing mean, it can be really overwhelming. And I've also seen people who are further along in their careers that are very competent struggle with this self-doubt and anxiety that comes from trying to figure out these more complex challenges that we face. So I'm wondering, in building your business and learning how to teach around these ideas, have you gained any insight about helping people overcome that self-doubt and helping them get past these mental barriers that helps them kind of get into understanding this technical knowledge a little bit easier? Yeah, there's there's sort of two things I think about that actually. Okay, so the first thing is what we do is hard. Buildings are difficult. It involves a lot collaboration from a lot of different kinds of specialists. And we have to have these sort of, like we're building something in the physical world. Thinking in three dimensions is hard. And every project we do, every building is a prototype. It's new, so it's hard. So I think that the first sort of part of approaching this is to recognize that in choosing this profession, you are choosing a path of lifelong learning. Lifelong, does not stop. And I think there's some um, comfort, I think, really in acknowledging that and that and acknowledging that that's true for everybody. There's, I don't know, a single professional who, I don't care how old they are, who doesn't learn a lot of new things with every new project, even if they've been operating within the same like typology for their whole career. There, of course, there's more stuff that they can draw and that's what experience is. But, um, but this is lifelong learning and it's okay to, I, I think it helps to acknowledge that and acknowledge that that's true for, for everybody because we'll all, and self-doubt is part of being human. Um, it's part of practicing any profession. So I think that sort of maybe takes the edge off it on the one hand. On the other hand, I think there's a real problem with the way our profession approaches technical things right now. I liken it to learning a language and that 
in a lot of it, certainly in the, the technical part of the profession that I focus on and that I teach, what we do or the way we expect people to learn is basically the way you would prepare, like you memorize a few phrases of a foreign language from a phrase book in advance of a vacation abroad. And, and we just sort of accumulate these phrases and this sort of mental shorthand for stuff that we know how to do. So if you know that if you go abroad, you're gonna to need to know how to order food, you're gonna to need to know how to ask where the bathrooms are. Like there's a few things, like I would like another, please. Like there's a few things that you know you're gonna to have to say. And, and that's how we kind of approached some of the, the technical parts of our profession. We're sort of just memorizing stuff. And over the course of a career, you can get by that way, right? You like, you end up knowing kind of a lot of a language if you've taken 30 trips to the same country and have learned how to say more cheese, please, in a lot of different ways. But if instead of doing that, if you learned a little bit about the grammar and vocabulary, a few key beginner's vocabulary in that language, you could actually start to communicate original thought and have real conversations with people. And this isn't to say that learning a language is easy. It isn't. We know that it's, we know that it's hard, but learning some sort of, some really basic grammar at the beginning helps us throughout the rest of the career. Cause after that, it's just expanding your vocabulary. And that's easier to pick up rather than picking up like the whole, like attempting to pick up whole phrases where you don't even know, um, you know, like where one word ends and the other begins, you know, you've just memorized it. So that's what I try to do with people. And that actually is not as hard as people imagine it is. We sort of take this inflated view of stuff that we don't know how to do. We assume it's harder than it is. It is not that hard. I cover, I teach a course in building science. I cover all of the fundamentals in approximately 10 hours. Give me 10 hours, I will give you the framework you need. And now that's not nothing, right? And people come back to it and there's there's applying that has nuance and you'll get you'll get better at that throughout throughout your whole career and that's fine, but having the initial framework is what's most helpful and that's what's missing. And it's just super intimidating when when you hear someone like blah, 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 in this foreign language, it sounds like a foreign language. But if you if you've got a framework and and some some basic vocabulary, you're not feeling quite so lost. And then actually, and then when you ask questions and people answer, you can understand the answer better, right? Like I, I remember being early in my career, I'd ask questions and I'd be like, those words were all English, but I have no idea what that person. <laughs> And that's, that's what it is. That's how I approach building science and building enclosure design and, and detailing is from this um, really first principles aspect. Like what are the basic things that a, a practitioner needs to know for daily practice? And, and how can I present that with a, as much clarity as possible and, and let them apply that in ever more complex situations? Or they get to a situation where they're like, well, they know they need help on this, but for, you know, 90, like I said, 95% of the stuff that people do daily, especially if they're operating within a particular typology, it's not out of reach. It really isn't. So be okay. Feeling lost and, um, and, and 
see if you can find someone to teach you a framework in, in whatever it is, right? This is, so I, I'm doing enclosure design, but there's other areas where I believe this type of stuff applies as well, like acoustic control, acoustic design, or I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but, um, but there are other specialties that I think sometimes appear way more complicated than they are for our applicate, for, for our purpose. You could spend your whole, same thing, you could spend your whole career doing acoustics, but not every one of us is doing a theater, you know? What do we need to know for, uh, for our day-to-day -day practice? And that stuff is not out of reach. It just seems like it is. I can't help but think back to my first year in practice, and I just had no clue what I was supposed to be doing because there was just no onboarding process. Oh my gosh, I know. I just, I really wish I had had someone like you, Christine, who was showing me kind of that, just some entry points into some of this stuff, because I don't think that the model that we have inherited of throwing people in the deep end works for everyone. And for me, it really did not work. It just kind of stalled me out from any growth because I just didn't know, I didn't know what to do. I literally took I talked to the woman that sat next to me. I was like, can I just like watch you over like a couple of days? Cause like, I just don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what questions sometimes to ask. I get really overwhelmed when I open the Revit model and like just having, I really think that the challenge that we're kind of facing in practice is we need to be better about helping people early in their careers, starting into this career, like onboarding, coming in, understanding how to get oriented into a project team or on a job or on a, you know, whatever they're working on. It's demoralizing. And I've like, I've been there for years. It's, it's very difficult to spend multiple years going into work every day, feeling like I don't actually know how to do the majority of what I'm going to be asked to do. It, that it's, and that's exhausting too. It's just exhausting. And then every year that goes by that disconnect between what you think you should know and what you actually know gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you feel more self-conscious. No, I, I, I don't like it. That's actually sort of how I started or how building science fight club started is I had this experience in the technical side of the profession where I went through that too, even though I had, I, I really feel like I had fantastic teachers their job wasn't to teach me. Their job was to do something else. And they were teaching me in their free time, right? So I guess I was sort of putting this framework together on the fly, like as I was learning it. And I would share it with my classmates from architecture school who weren't in the field as much. And I did that on, on Instagram. I would take a I would take a photo and then I would just I'd mark it up or I'd I'd add a sketch or something and describe the technical principle at play as I understood it. And when I started doing this, I was, I was sharing this with people I knew from architecture school, these were friends. And I started realizing, oh, but we weren't right out of school. Like we were, this was, a, this was a few years out. So we'd had a little bit of experience. And I think we were all sort of realizing around the same time, we were, it was a little bit like the emperor has no clothes type of stuff where we were realizing that we'd been asking questions for several years from our you know, bosses and more senior colleagues and stuff and getting answers and not really understanding the answers, but being too afraid to ask the follow-up question, or we'd ask one follow-up question, maybe even two, but we were like, eh, I got to, now they're really going to think I'm an idiot, right? I got to call it <laughs> off. Exactly. 
And I think we started getting to the point where we were like, no, they like, even the people, that's the answer that they gave me, but I don't think actually even they understand it. And it was a kind of a crazy realization that people that we had otherwise looked up to didn't actually understand this stuff very well either. I don't know, for better or worse, that's just the case. I think that's true, but that's why I thought it would be interesting to take for me to take teaching more seriously and pursue it as a, as a real thing, as opposed to just a, something I do along with my regular job, because there existed that gap where we didn't really, nobody had a really good framework for this and people were too afraid to ask. And I I wanted to, I think it says something if somebody who's acknowledged to be an expert for better or worse, publicly asks the same or similar questions. And I, that, I think that's actually really powerful to say, I don't like if, when I say, I don't understand, or I don't know, and I'm doing it in a public way, I think that really helps sort of makes it easier for other people to also say, oh, I don't understand either. Or like, and, and, and then, and push and press with the answer. That exact sort of demoralizing feeling is what led to my business. <laughs> I mean, and that, to be clear, this isn't my only business. I teach, it, it is just fun. I just enjoy doing it. And I would have um, incorporated it probably into anything, but I, I'm a consultant and I work on real buildings on real projects. I'm an immigrant though also. And there was a period where I wasn't permitted to work formally. Uh, and it was about a year. And so I thought, well, how am I going to use this year? And I was like, well, I could either take the ARES <laughs> or I could um, treat teaching like it's my job and see if there's anything, if there's anything to it. Like if I'm going to teach and it's, and I'm going to ask for money to teach, then I better be good at it. So why don't I, why don't I practice teaching? Why don't I, why don't I invest in that in a little while or for a little, for this period of time and see what happens. So I did that. And and now, and now I do both. I teach and I consult, but it was a really fun, I guess I didn't realize how much I would like it when I really treated it with more discipline than just being a hobby. Now it's also a hobby, but, um, but you do things differently when you've got, so I mean, same with us, like, like in, this is, this should not be an unfamiliar concept in the design profession. There's a different way that you approach something when you're doing it for a client than when you're just sort of playing around with something and both are valuable. Both are valuable. And it was interesting to me as I have this distinct memory of when I worked in an architecture firm and I was detailing out a new build of a school and the project manager I was working with you know, it was like, it got to a certain point with how many questions you ask them about a single detail or the project manager I was working with. I I had a lot of questions about details because I'd never detailed a school like this. And it was just really clear to me that he kept giving me weird looks after I had hit a certain percentage or a certain number of questions. And so at that point, I was like, okay, I obviously can't pursue the same line of questioning with this individual because apparently I'm supposed to already know or have learned everything from what he's told me. Yeah, I think also there's a few, like, there are common, I've learned through, through just through pure experience teaching, there are sort of common barriers to understanding in our profession where now I wish I could think of an example, maybe a one will come to me, but there's like a few things where if you just explain that one thing, then, then the, the learner is like, Oh, it's not always intuitive to the, to the person teaching, but that's something I've really enjoyed actually about teaching more formally 
is um, learning what those sort of those barriers are because they're not all there. Some of them are unique. Like there's just something that's unique to you, Evelyn, that you happen to not grasp about a particular concept, but a lot of them are just uh, like kind of basic first principle things that somebody just missed. Like they didn't start teaching you A, B, C, D. They started at C. And if you just knew A and B, you'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. The rest of it, that's fine. That, that, that all makes sense. But you didn't tell me that one critical part. So there's, I, I love identifying more and more of those through teaching that kind of makes stuff click for people. Oh, I can think of one. Okay. So energy recovery ventilators, ERVs. I personally would always be confused about it. I didn't understand ventilation. Like a big part of why I didn't understand ventilation was because I didn't understand ERVs because energy is in the word. I thought that sort of their primary purpose had to do with energy efficiency. And that's not really true. It's their energy recovery ventilators. They're, the job is to provide ventilation, to provide fresh air for a space. So it's a little bit like a hybrid car where when you press the brakes, it recharges the battery. I don't know how hybrid cars work, but whatever. But that's really cool. That's energy efficient and that's cool. But the reason that you brake is not to recharge the battery. You brake to stop the car. And anyway, it was like that with uh, with ERVs. And as soon as I understood that the purpose was, didn't have, the energy part was incidental to the main purpose, which was ventilation. And once I understood that, I could make sense of like a zillion conversations on mechanical conditioning and ventilation that previously were like completely unintelligible to me. Anyway, there's, I think there's just dozens of those, those things where when you, when you break it down, people are like, oh, I get it. But it's like lots of stuff, stuff that seems hard to us. We put at the bottom of our list a lot of times and um, put it off, put it off, put it off. And then when you get to it, you're like, oh, really? That was it. That took like 30 seconds. I still do that. Very relatable. Oh my gosh. <laughs> when will I change? <laughs> I do want to dive into your business some more. Um, so you said you're doing, you're running multiple businesses. Let's start with the um, online learning program that you've developed. So you, you've come up with a, you said you developed a curriculum. It's available online. People can sign up for this. Tell us a little bit more about what you're offering. So really, it's just continuing education for architects in the area of in technical competence and, and detailing. So energy, um, water management, and indoor air quality. Really, that that's it. it there's not much um, not much more to it. I spent a long time because I had this sort of this time off, this mandated courtesy of U.S. Customs and Border Control. I had this this mandated time off where I had a long time to explore the best way of teaching this kind of stuff. And I came up with a framework that I thought was really helpful and I filmed it and put it online and thought, well, let, let's see how people like it. And it turns out people really do. So that's really nice. It's satisfying. A lot of, a lot of people who take the course are like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Sort of the same thing. It was a series of aha moments for practicing professionals. And that makes me so proud and so pleased to see people who previously viewed this as a, as a gap in their area of expertise, a weak spot in their practice, view it now as a strength. I'm very happy for them. And I'm so glad to have participated in that. Anyway, so that's, so that's, the, that's the teaching part of the business. I'm, I'm launching two new classes um, soon. It's uh, probably, probably around mid-February. I'll have one on ventilation and indoor air quality for residential homes. 
and or residential buildings. And then another one on, on condensation control and dew point, which is I think one of the least well understood concepts in architecture and the most intimidating vapor control, that kind of stuff. Um, and those are shorter. The, the one I started with was the comprehensive course. It's about 10 hours and it takes you through pretty much everything that you'll come across in, in daily practice. And it's, it's on demand. It's, um, there's no expiration date to it. It's intended to be a reference for people to come back to multiple times in their career when a new concept becomes newly relevant with new work. But it's been, that was really fun. It was a, a really fun project. I'm, I'm really proud of it. Anyway, so I managed that process. And, um, and then I also teach privately. So some firms will say, can you come in and teach us about this particular thing? Or this is what our practice looks like. These are our, our primary areas of concern. Help us out. Um, and that's also really fun. I especially like doing that locally. Um, I, there's a firm that I work with where I'm based in, in Dallas, although I do this everywhere. Um, oh, I went out, you know who I went out and talked to is uh, mutual friends of the show, Rios. And oh my gosh, are they not the coolest firm ever? Those guys were so cool. And they're all like extra cool because it's California, California. Oh, I know. We love oh them. They're so interesting. I loved their podcast interview with you too. Uh, they, they are so cool. Uh, I, had a, I had a ton of fun with them. I love doing that and connecting in a different way. The course I do is really designed for individual learning, but there's really something special about group learning, especially in among colleagues where you can feel free to ask different kinds of questions. If you're like, if you're at a conference, you ask a different kind of question than if you're, you know, if you're asking it in, like next to your, you know, suite mates in a, or, you know, studio mate in a, in a project, there's a, a fun level of informality that can happen to those kinds of teachings. And then I also consult. So just sort of normal, um, specialty consulting on particular projects, building science, water management, energy efficiency, that kind of stuff. So, um, but this is new. I've really only done this for a little while. So I feel really, um, like I said before, just really inspired by the small business owners in the profession of architecture. I have a lot of respect for that and admiration for people who, because I mean, it's, it's a lot like the practicing architecture also, but you're trained in this one area, but you also have to file your taxes. And, and when people have employees, right, they have to figure out payroll. They have to, there's all these things that they have to figure out. And uh, there's um, I, I, a lot of respect. <laughs> you mentioned that you were from Dallas, but actually you're broadcasting from Denver right now or Colorado, which I think is an interesting twist. You know, that the kind of the pandemic has allowed us to change how we do work and where do, where we do work. And you and I talked at the top of the conversation about being quasi on vacation. How have you adapted in terms of remote work, in terms of how you teach, and in terms of how you do your consulting on real projects? I'm in the field a lot less than I used to be, and I don't like that. I love being on active construction sites, and I don't think there's a real substitute for meeting with people face-to-face. -face. I think there's a real efficiency in that. So overall, <laughs> I will be very pleased when we uh, get back to some kind of more normal practice. I mean, I'm sure, like everybody, I, there's, there's nuance to this and trade-offs, and there's some real benefits to, I think, a lot of people being granted more flexibility in their jobs. I think those are, those are good things. I don't know. Overall, I think I kind of, I've almost forgotten with so much work from home stuff and digital stuff. Like this is fun. What we're doing right now, this podcast over Zoom is fun. This is great. But I would 
really rather be sitting with you guys drinking a beer at, you know, I don't know, Greenbelt or something or the AAA conference, or just while I happen to be in California, um, or I guess I think, um, Janine, you've moved, right? To Yeah, I'm in North Carolina now, but yes, I'm the same. I'd rather I, have a probably, coffee with you or whatever. Probably because you and I are extroverts. We like really <laughs> love that. My husband is an introvert and he's like, this is fantastic. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. But te- for teaching in particular, I find that yeah, I've made do with online. And for some, like the, the course I teach that's on demand, that is, I think it being online is an asset. It's individual, it's quiet. You do it at your own pace in your own living room. Like there's some types of learning that are more individualized. And I don't think that really is the, so the course I teach doesn't, it being online is an asset and on demand is an asset, but for much learning, it just is, but you just get a better experience when you, when you're doing it live. The first, the first course, like back when we thought the pandemic was over, I did a, I took a trip. It was, you know, I hadn't taken, I hadn't been on a plane in like a year and a half, maybe longer. And I took a trip and I was teaching a group of people in um, Portland, Oregon. And it was like electric. I was so happy to teach yeah. and so were they, it was just fantastic. So I don't know. It's um, I like, of course, like everybody, I like the flexibility of doing stuff in stretchy pants and pajamas and slippers, but I do, I do obviously really miss the, the actual face-to-face interaction. I'm sure the same. You know, I know you said you had business training and you didn't feel very competent at it, but the way that you've put together your website for your business is so impressive. Like Evelyn and I, we do care about business. Like we, like that's the thing that we excel at, whereas like you excel at this other part that we don't have. And, but when we look at your business website, like that is a very sophisticated delivery that you're putting out there. So you, you've done a great job marketing it and bringing it together and, I think the way you're selling it makes sense to both of us. Oh, thank you so much. I, so actually, weirdly, there is an architecture lesson in that. And I will t- and I will share it. And although I needed a little encouragement from other people in my life in this direction, but my philosophy on that, and there's constraints on this philosophy, obviously, but my philosophy on that is to hire specialists. Like when you're not, which is what we do in architecture. like. I tell, I tell people all the, t- all the time, like, this is why you should hire a designer. Like who is an architect who does this? I think in general, like homes, for example, are much larger than they need to be because they're poorly designed. And so people think that an architect is just an added cost to something. No, no, no. An architect is a specialist who will make better use of your limited resources. And I kind of felt that way with my business also, where there was a time, so I had, you know, I had this course and I wanted to teach this course, but I thought, okay, so I guess I could film it and edit it myself and just teach myself that. And my husband was like, listen to yourself in no other circumstances. Do you recommend that people just do that? They just wing it, like go hire someone who's good at this. And, uh, anyway, so I didn't do the website design myself. I didn't do the, um, the filming or the editing myself, There's obviously limitations on that. I also didn't, so I hired somebody professional to do those things. And I'm glad, thank you for that's high praise coming from the two of you that that (laughs) works. 
but uh, money well spent. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and it was pretty, it, I thought it was a pretty modest investment, but it was an important one, but I did, there were other investments I didn't make. So for example, there's, um, I have a sort of general hierarchy and how I represent things in in my teaching, like the, there's a consistency to the colors. So the bright pink always means something flexible. A flexible membrane is it's always the same color. Um, insulation is always the same color, that kind of stuff. So there's an, there's an order to that, but I didn't hire a branding specialist or, so there's no, like, there's no real logic to my typography or the, that kind of stuff. There isn't, I don't have a formal brand hierarchy or, or anything like that. The colors I'm picking aren't, like, I don't, I don't know what color it is. It's the color that I was, that's pre-populated on my iPad. <laughs> There's no like Pantone or anything. Like, I don't, I don't know what it's called. It's just the color that's there. So there's a lot of stuff where if it were a more sophisticated business or a division of a, a big business or something that obviously I would have, there's, there's room for improvement for specialists there or not. I mean, I, that's also a, that's sort of a conscious balance too. Some people, um, there's some things that I handwrite that people really, they're like, I can't read this or that they really don't like the pink. And I'm like, well, sorry. <laughs> like that's that. And that's a, that's a, that's a brand decision or a brand identity decision. And it comes at the expense occasionally of clarity. And that's, you know, there's always, um, there's some tension with some of those decisions as well, but thanks for, I'm, I really am kind of feeling around in the dark, but in general, it's important to I think that advice that we as designers give to our clients is good advice for ourselves to let specialists, yes, be a generalist. Let, yes, it's important to understand what's going on, but also understand when to step aside and let someone else take over. Yeah. I actually would say that I think it is your training and marketing that makes you aware of the nuances that you just expressed to us in the last two minutes about branding and making those conscious choices. And you're the one who's running your Instagram account. You've been the voice and the designer behind your Instagram account. I feel that your marketing background, whether you like it or not, is definitely playing out there as well. It was only two years and I was very young, but, um, but that's true. I still keep in touch with some of those people and they, they of course, approach their jobs with uh, just as much discipline and seriousness as, as anybody else. And I think there's... Um, <laughs> there's a, a sort of truism, like everything is easy until you actually know something about it. We see that in design too, where a lot of times well-designed spaces don't feel well-designed. They just feel awesome. They're not, um, the you're not noticing the design. You're noticing whatever else the designer wanted you to notice or experience in the space. And I try to kind of get out of my own way in terms of teaching in the same way that it's yes, it should be appealing and and there's a there's a brand aspect to it as well. But the goal is to actually make the information itself beneficial. And I think that's why the that's why it's been successful. Maybe it could be because being like an influencer is sort of in and of itself valuable or popularity is 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 seen as its own end. And I don't think the I've always focused on the like the content first, the other stuff, like the, the packaging later, not that it doesn't matter. It's just that the, that the content is so important. And also that's what makes me proudest or, or most embarrassed if I screw it up. Right. You know, if I get my branding a bit off, okay, whatever. I'm not a branding person. If I get the building science off, that's not good. <laughs> 
Well, obviously, I think there's so much that you've said throughout this conversation that are both lessons and takeaways, not only those that are entering the practice, but those who are lifelong learners and have had many decades of practice behind them already. We have been closing out our podcast series or our episodes this season with kind of a final question. So that final question to you and everyone else is, what is one lesson on change needed in the practice of architecture that you'd like to pass forward to the architects, emerging professionals, and industry disruptors listening? There's lots of things that our industry is dynamic, right? So there's lots of things that we could benefit from as an industry. I always think that it's being asked to give advice is, I don't know, it always sort of makes me smile a little bit because I think a lot of times when people actually ask for advice, individuals, you're talking about to the profession in general, but when people ask for advice, they don't actually really need advice. What they need is encouragement. And so I think, um, I don't know, (laughs) it's just an observation. Encouragement matters. Um, I think it, I think a lot of times encouragement ends up mattering even more than advice. We talked briefly about branding and, running a small business. And when I have noticed that in running my business, there's no shortage. I get lots of advice all the time, unsolicited, sometimes solicited. And I think that's true for a lot of professionals because this profession has so many entrepreneurs and small business owners in it. And um, I think everybody kind of already knows this, that like at a certain point you have to know when to not listen to the advice and and go your own way. And what's really, again, there, what's really valuable is the encouragement part, not the specific advice. So everybody's different. Everybody's business is different. So I don't know, I guess maybe keeping that in mind, that's a good thing to keep in mind for the profession is the difference between encouragement and, and advice. And we're, we're creative people. We are good at, at taking what other people's experiences and learning from them and adapting them to, suit our own lives, but everybody's, everybody's different. So I don't think that there's a universally applicable stuff that works for every, every person at every, every different point in their career. And that's okay. Um, so anyway, that's something. What could be as a profession be better at, um, building science? (laughs) Take my class. (laughs) No, I mean, I think, uh, I think we're pretty good as a profession. I think as we seek to, this is my advice is as we seek to improve, I think that we um, acknowledge what a good job we actually are doing in the, with, with hard stuff. Buildings are so complicated. And I think we as a profession do really well at navigating that complexity and producing really fantastic spaces for our clients, given their constraints. Not an excuse to stop, not an excuse to um, to be lazy, but I think maybe an encouragement. We do, but we really build very differently than we used to build even 30, 50 years ago. And maybe maybe that's my advice is, is um, always be improving, but appreciate, uh, appreciate the um, change in the and the progress. Things are not the same as they as they used to be. And it's helpful to acknowledge that. Thank you again to our podcast partner, Monograph. Learn how Monograph can help you take control of your firm's financial health. Follow the link in our show notes or visit practiceofarchitecture.com backslash Monograph so that Monograph knows that you heard about them from us. Thank you to ArcIT for their support of this episode. Don't forget to visit getarchit.com slash PD to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment, or custom solutions for your design firm. 
Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practice of arch. That's at practice of A-R-C-H. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.